Well, all right, I think we should just go for it. Um, so, I mean, my question is all about sort of how we experience love, and I feel like you guys have just answered it. You, look at this, you filled the closet, and here you are, and we're all together, and I'm very grateful. Um, I've been coming to Mockingbird for a few years, and known about it forever. Yes, this is... That should be. Seal the crypt. No one's going to tell a That's all the way. The air will run out in 40 minutes. You have 40 minutes. We all start communicating. Oh. All right. a little bit claustrophobic. Say the Lord be with you. That's exactly that's how you well what I what I actually want to say is before I start, if you now want to take out your phones and sort of text the person that you need to say goodbye to. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably the last thing we're gonna do. Um, that's true. I mean perhaps we're in the bunker. Um, there's a lot of ways to think about this. But anyway you do it. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming, really. I'm excited to do this. I normally just you know, spend my days talking to seminary students, and the bar is incredibly low, especially when it comes to humor. They don't expect you to say anything sort of engaging or entertaining, and if you tell just the mildest form of a joke, I mean, they think you're the funniest person in the world, and that's great for my day-to-day, but it's terrible when I come to Mockingbird, because Mockingbird, for me, is sort of like the Sermon on the Mount of talks. You know, it's, you've heard it said, if you give a talk, be clear and engaging and say something meaningful, but... When you come to Mockingbirds, I say to you, you know, you must be as winsome as John Zoll. You must quote The Who, Seinfeld, and The Onion, all in the same sentence, at least four times. And, you know, your talk must be perfect, because a David Zoll talk is perfect. And one can feel a little bit of pressure. And I just decided not to care, because uh, I, I can do that. So, um, because that last bit was a lie, I'd like to say a little prayer. <laughs> and then we will go ahead and get started. Sort of just jump right in. Oh, don't worry about that. That was only the world's leading no, the grammar scholar. He doesn't need to come in. <laughs> no big deal. It's very nice of you to come back. Uh, I would recommend leaving. This is phenomenal. I should leave the door cracked. It looks bad. All right. Well, there you go. I think we were about to pray. So let's do that. Father, thank you for having us here today. We just ask two things, that you would show us that we need Jesus, and that you would give us Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so all I really have, and I I tried to tell you the truth. Well, that's not true. I told you I wasn't even going to be here when I gave my little preview, so I started out lying, but I tried to be relatively honest. What I really have today is a question, more than an answer, and... I actually had the same question yesterday and the day before, and there's a certain sense that at the end of the day yesterday, I felt that the question had been answered. But I wake up every day and the question is new again. And really what I want to do is just ask the question, I want to take some time to talk about it, and so um, I hope you came because you're really eager to help me answer it, and then we will sort of move on, and I'm okay having a question that I can't answer. Do you remember what the novelist Graham Greene said? He said, when we're not sure, we're alive. And I find that encouraging, because I'm not sure, so maybe 
you know, I'm still breathing. But on the other hand, I feel a little bit about the question I'm going to ask, and I will state it at some point. I feel a little bit about the question I'm going to ask, like Josh Ritter feels about his girl in the song Girl in the War. If you don't know this song, I've just introduced it to you, it was worth coming, because this song is a miracle. But what he says is, I've got a girl in the war, and the only thing I know to do is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through. And then he says this. He says, the keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom, and the angels fly around in there, and they can't see him. I've got a girl in the war. I know that they can hear me yell. If they can't find a way to help her, they can go to hell. And what I feel as I face this question every day is if the angels or theology or what passes for Christianity or whatever else is supposed to get us through the day can't help us with the question that life poses to us every day, it can go to hell. I'm quoting Josh Ritter. I would never say that, but um, <laughs> that's just a quote. And I was reading a novel by William Hale White, who wrote, wrote under the name Mark Rutherford, and he was brave enough to say this. And in some ways, this is what prompted me to ask a question in public that I don't know the answer to. Um, because I think the question is worth asking. He's writing about a character who was uh, from the sort of dissenting, John Bunyan-like um, dissenting church tradition, Calvinist tradition in England, and has just lost his wife. It's the first real tragedy in his life, this character. And he finds, when this tragedy strikes, that his Christianity is not a resource. And White writes this, it says, in those dark three months, the gospel that he had heard did nothing for him, and he was cast forth to wrestle with his sufferings alone. It is surely a terrible charge to bring against a religious system, that in the conflict which has to be waged by every son of Adam with disease, misfortune, and death, Come on in. Thank you for being here. So it was saying, it's surely a terrible charge to bring against a religion, that if in the conflict which every son of Adam has to wage with disease, misfortune, and death, the believers in it are provided with neither armor nor weapons. If it can tell us nothing, if we cannot face a single disaster any the better for it, and if we never dream of turning to it when we are actually in distress... What value is it? And basically what I'm trying to ask this morning is simply, in real life, up until and after our last breath, what value is all of this that we talk about? All this stuff that happened in the first century. I'm specifically going to be talking about Jesus and how that is actually something like a comfort and an answer and a help in the 21st century. At least... I hope to say something like that. So this is how this talk is going to go. It's not really a talk. It's sort of thinking out loud, inviting you to think with me, and then saying a little something. So I'm going to take about 10 minutes or so, and I'm going to try to summarize Christianity. It's going to be, it's going to be simple, but that's what I'm going to do. It's more going to just be a confession of the core of Christianity. I'm going to try to do it in about 10 minutes. But then based on that, I want to raise a question. I'll take about five minutes or so to ask the question. And I'd like to open it up for discussion for about 20 minutes to think together about this question, why it's a question, how we might answer it, how maybe it got answered yesterday, why we're hopeful 
that tomorrow there might be an answer, that sort of thing. And then in lieu of trying to offer an answer myself for the last five to ten minutes or so, I'm just going to offer a little reflection on Genesis 28. So that's what we're going to do, and we'll see what happens. But we're going to start with the simple task of summarizing Christianity in ten minutes. And um, here's what I want to say. I think that there are really only two questions. Two questions in life. And anything else you can ask is answered by asking these questions, is a subset of them, that sort of thing. So there's two questions, and they're even related to each other. And if you answer one of them, you've answered the other. But let's just say there's two questions. The first question is, who is God? I know this question is worth asking, because people ask it when they're dying, and people ask it when they're children. And you should always pay attention to the question that dying people ask and children ask. Because those are honest questions, right? The pretense has been taken away. And I know that dying people ask this because there's a story in 1944 when a soldier was suffering and had been mortally wounded and was about to breathe his last breath. And a stretcher bearer, who also happened to be a Scottish theologian, stumbled upon him. And the soldier looked at him and said, Father, what is God like? It was his last question, the last thing he could get out. So it's asked in that context, but it was also asked by my three-year-old when my wife was reading her Sally's Jesus Storybook Bible. And my three-year-old said, in the childlike form of this question, what does God look like? That's what she wanted to know. What's he like? And this question can be answered really one of two ways. It can either be answered without reference to Jesus or it can be answered with reference to Jesus. And I really believe it to be that simple. When you ask this question without reference to Jesus, what you find is that you are like the sailors in the story of Jonah, when the storm comes up, and the seas come up, and it says they all cried out to their own God, but they were still afraid, because they didn't know who God was. For them, God was a question mark. And so turning to him in a moment of real distress left them afraid. It wasn't actually a comfort. And if we ask this question, recognizing what the first half of John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, it makes sense that we're not sure. Is God more like the flood that destroyed my hometown? Or is he more like the beautiful rainbow that I saw afterwards? Is God more like the feeling of love that I had when I first held my newborn son? Or the feeling of anger I had when I held that same son four months later at four in the morning? Again, right? Which one is he more like? I was thinking, we're at St. George's. Is God more like George Washington, George Patton, or George Costanza? Right? I mean, how could you possibly know? Um, and the point is, is that all you really have is a question mark. And you can't be sure. There's things that would give you some hope, and things that would cause some fear. It would be ambiguous, and you would be afraid, like the sailors in the story of Jonah. And so the question is, where do we go when we're asking this question? And I learned the answer in the most profound form when my three-year-old asked my wife, what does God look like? So they're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, and my three-year-old says, what does... God look like, and my wife, um, in a moment of true inspiration, which is, she seems to live in that moment, but 
what she did, instead of flipping to the beginning where there's you know, a visual representation of God, what she did was turn to the story of the crucifixion. And she read to my daughter. So my daughter said, Mommy, what does God look like? And my wife read, and they led him to a hill. And they drew nails through his hands and through his feet. And they hung him on a cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. And he said, I thirst. And he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, It is finished. And he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he died. My wife turned to my daughter and said, That, Callie, is what God looks like. And that's what the second half of John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God, but the one who is from the Father's side, the only Son, He has made Him known. Right? The New Testament's answer to the question, what is God like, is the name Jesus Christ. And specifically, Jesus Christ given in death. 1 John 4 says, God is love. And then it tells us how it knows that. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And he sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. As the chaplain said to the dying soldier, who said, what is God like? The answer is, God is like Jesus. And because of that, we can answer the first question, who is God? With First John and say, God is love. Right? So we're halfway in to Christianity in my summary. God is love. And we know that because of Jesus Christ. The second question is, who am I? And this, again, is a question that people ask when they're in distress. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously asked this question when he was in prison, the same prison in which he would finally die. He wrote a poem called, Who Am I? It's a beautiful poem. And there's, again, two ways to answer this question. The first way to answer this question is by trying to squeeze through a door. <laughs> a door that you just cannot fit through. <laughs> Alright, so... Where we are, right? Who is God? And we've seen that Jesus lets us say God is love. The second question, who am I? And again, there's two ways to answer this question. The first way to answer this question is with reference to my own life. My own autobiography. Right? Basically pull out my resume, pull out my genealogy, pull out that sort of stuff. And this will be my answer to the question, who am I? You see Paul do this in Philippians 3, for example. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? As to the law, zealous, blameless, circumcised on the eighth day. He has a kind of resume that he comes out in, you know, popular culture. David Zoll wonderfully introduced me to John Fitzgerald Page. Who does this? He was in 2007 named the worst person in the world. Um, he's actually a hero of mine in many respects. Just be, he's a gift to all people who speak in public. But you know, he pulled out a resume of righteousness when a girl said that she wasn't interested in him, and he said, "Wait a minute, I'm an 8.9 on Hot or Not. You know, I have an Ivy League education. I was on Jezebel's Best Dressed. I've been in four motion pictures. You know, and he lists about three more things, and then he says, etc." Which I think is the best, you know. <laughs> well, I, haven't, I haven't even told you everything. Uh, and the truth is, we kill ourselves trying to answer the question, who am I, with reference to ourselves. You know, we sort of cash in our childhood because we've got to go to Yale. Or we work late and miss our kids' childhoods because 
the size of our bank account determines our value, right? Or we purchase mail order torture from the fitness industry, sure that the size of our waist determines our worth. I mean, this is life lived trying to answer the question, who am I, with reference to yourself. But the problem is, the question in this case is not just ambiguous, it comes back negative, right? And there's a remarkable scene in Revelation chapter 5, where God is sitting on the throne, and he's holding a scroll, and John's seeing this, and he breaks down and starts weeping. And you find out that he's weeping because he's looked, and he's looked in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. He's looked at everything, and he says, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And he's weeping. And that's the conclusion that comes when you ask the question, who am I, and try to answer it by looking at yourself. You're going to wind up weeping with John and saying, I'm not worthy. But there is another way to answer this question too. And that's not with reference to me, but with reference to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And when you look there, what you're doing is you're following the finger of the angel in Revelation 5 who comes to John when he's weeping, and he's weeping because no one's worthy, and he says, do not weep. Look there. And he says, I looked, and there was a lamb standing as if he had been butchered. And I heard a new song, and it said, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because he has redeemed from God a people from every tribe and tongue and nation <coughs> to be a kingdom of priests for our God. Right? So the conclusion that comes when we look at ourselves is, I'm not worthy. But when you follow the finger to Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, a different answer comes back. Not, I'm not worthy. But because of him, you are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. And you, God, is well pleased. And this again is what 1 John 4 says. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So the answer to the second question, who am I? You are loved. That's my summary of Christianity. Right? A summary of what Jesus lets us say. God is love, and you are loved. And what I really want to do is say amen and leave. <coughs> that's really what I want to do. And that's what I would do if I was preaching a sermon. Um, but I've been finding lately that when I do that, I've just hit the point of an important question. The reason I can't stop right now is because, of all things, I never thought I would say this, Billy Joel won't let me. Um, because what was happening, um, I don't know Billy Joel that well, but I was driving my mother-in-law's car to a place that I think should be sort of a canonized location, because it's where Mary Zoll came of age, it's where uh, PZ's Panopticon was written. It's a wonderful place, but I will not disclose the location. And I was going there and just put in the Billy Joel because it was the only thing that wasn't sort of contemporary Christian music and my mother-in-law's thing. So by default, I turned to Billy Joel. And wouldn't you know it, God had a message, right? Wouldn't you know it? I'm driving along, innocently enough, listening to a song that I don't know well. I think it's called Vienna. And it says, you know, I'm just hearing, it's bobbing my head. It says, slow down, you crazy child. I was driving about 90, so it was good advice. Um, you're too rambunctious for a juvenile. And then came this line, and I almost crashed the car. It said, if you're so smart, well, tell me, why are you still so afraid? And I thought, 
dear Lord, Billy Joel, you're going to kill me. Right? Um, if you're so smart, if you know the answer to the question, who is God and who are you, if God is love and you were loved, if you know that and you're so smart, why are you still so afraid? If this First John 4 also says, perfect love casts out fear, and you know that God is love and you are loved, why are you still so afraid? What's the disconnect, in other words, between what you know and what life feels like and what you fear so much? And as I began to wrestle with this question, a couple of things came to my mind. And this is going to be where I sort of ask the question, and then I want to take some time talking about it together before I offer a little reflection to close. But the first thing I realized is that that summary I gave you of Christianity, God is love and I am loved, are anchored or grounded or based on one moment in time. Right? Probably 29-ish A.D., on a hill outside the gates of Jerusalem, one man, one death, one last breath, that's what lets us say God is love and I am love. But to sing that old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? You know, I, I wasn't, in the most obvious sense of the word. I wasn't there. And if that's God's embodiment of love, if that's where he said I love you, how does that ground or become the basis for me saying I am loved? And why, if that isn't I love you, does life feel more like I am not loved so much of the time. What's going on with that disconnect? And I think one of them has to do with the simple space between there and then and here and now. That's one of the reasons, I think. And in this lane, this is where the title for my talk came. I was reminded of Lessing, who famously said, there's this ugly broad ditch that I cannot leap over, right? The accidental truths of history can never become the proof for the necessary truths of reason. And what Lessing was interested in was just that there's these two different kinds of truth, things that would be true whether they happened or not, and these kinds of things that happened in history. But why it was helpful for me is that it diagnosed a disconnect. It put its finger on this lack of coming together between what I confess, between what I know, and the fear that I have when I'm driving and Billy Joel shows up, right, in the CD player. And... There's a lot of ways you could talk about this disconnection. It's the disconnect between then and there and here and now. It's also the disconnect between, or maybe better to say the contradiction between what we see when we see ourselves and the conclusions that we come to. I'm not worthy. And yet we, what we hear when God addresses us in Jesus, I love you. The contradiction is so stark between what we think we should hear between what we see and then what we say God says to us in Jesus, that it doesn't even sound like it could be right. If the contradiction is so sharp that it's a disconnect. I'm not lovable. God says I love you. You know? No, I don't think so. Right? Billy Joel was right. It's, in other words, the question between, or the gap between, an I love you spoken in the first century and an I am loved confessed and felt and experienced and believed and known in the true, full sense that we could speak in the 24th century. And so here's my question. This is the question I find myself asking over and over. And as I said, even when one day answers it, 
it's new each morning. Because it's a question about the present tense. And so it can never be answered finally. It can only really be answered by pointing back to how it was answered yesterday, and therefore hoping that it will be answered today. But my question is, can a past tense love become the basis for a present tense, I am loved? Can God say, can God saying, I love you in Jesus, then and there, become a new word, a new I love you, to me, here and now? And I mean to me. You know, the person who shouldn't be loved, and also the person who wasn't there. So this double disconnect between time and space, and between the content of the word, I love you, and the object that it's spoken to. Me. Are you kidding me? Me. Right? That's the question. If you're so smart, if God is love and you are loved, why are you still so afraid? Why isn't it actually connecting? What's short-circuiting in at least my experience of this? And maybe it's true of yours. You packed into a room like this, so maybe I touched the nerve. I even said, I'm not going to be here. I saw the closet that we were going to be in, and we actually have people in the bathroom um, in there. So, I mean, you know, just maybe, this is not just my question, right? Maybe this disconnect is actually touching something that you felt to, right? If we know, and this is what Mockingbird exists for, is to say, in Jesus' name, God is love and you are loved. But it also wants to do the thinking about how that gets to you, how that gets to me. And so what I want to do before I offer a little reflection, before I do that, which could kind of restrict what kind of conversation we have, I want to open it up. I want to take about, I don't know, uh, 20 minutes or so, 15 minutes, we'll just see how it goes. And I, I want to hear basically anything that comes to you when you hear that. The ways that that question has been true to your experience. If you want to share maybe a way in which it was one time answered, right? Which obviously isn't today's answer, because it's about how you'll experience it today. But maybe it was answered profoundly yesterday in some way. And also just sort of, um, what, what's going on? What are we missing? Like, why are the dots not being connected? And I think that sort of question is helpful as we think about sort of what it is that we have to share, what we have to say to each other and to ourselves on the basis of Jesus. So I'm going to not move at all because I can't, but if I could, I would sort of step back. Uh, but I want to open it up, and I'll sort of chime in as we're discussing, and then as we get to about 11.50 or so, I'll offer a short five-minute reflection, and that will be the end of our time. I'd like to hear from anybody, and I'm very comfortable with silence, which is why I'm talking right now. <laughs> Yeah, this guy in the bathroom. He's going to talk. I'm just going to shut the door. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know the answer. Um, I don't even know what I think the answer is, but I think I have an idea around what the disconnect is. Um, and for me, why I have in the past not felt like God necessarily loved me um, It's because I think the, the love of God is so radically different than my notion of love that a lot of times I don't really understand it. Um, I think we're all a little bit like, or at least I am, kind of like Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. I've got all these plans for my life. You know, his dad went to World War II and died. His grandfather died in the Civil War and died, 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 revolutionary war and all that stuff. 
And so his dream was to go to Vietnam and die. And so God thought that was a horrible plan. And so he blew his legs off. Yeah. And, you know, later on he made his, you know, made his peace with God and all that stuff. But I think for me in my life, I've had plans, and I've asked God to come. Like, I built this house of cards, and I asked God to come spray hairspray on it to make it stick. Mm. But God just dropped a bomb on my plans because he loves me too much. Um, my plans that lead to death, ultimately, are horrible plans. And so for me... Whereas I see God loving me and not letting my plans come to fruition, it feels very hurtful. Mm. And so I think that for me, in the past is where my disconnect has come from. Mm. So. Yeah. Whew. So it's, it's not just the disconnect between like the way you love, but the love comes in a form that it doesn't feel like an affirmation right. of what you dreamed. Well, it feels like a cruel dream. It feels, yeah, it feels like the the end of a dream. There's an amazing thing. What I should have done here, but I couldn't because I didn't discover it and so it wouldn't have come for me, but I was given a song that someone knew I was asking this question. They gave me this song by a guy named Burton Cummings. Um, the song is called Invisible and we really should just be listening to it, but I'm going to, that's your homework. That's what you're going to do as soon as you leave here. And um, if you want to know, I'll tell you my source in private. But it's a remarkable song and I think it's relevant to what you're saying because not only does the song list a whole bunch of ways in which love got in, right? He says, I saw it, I read it in a Bible, I heard it in a storybook, right? I had it in my first love, all these sorts of places you might expect it. He also then starts listing that he encountered this thing that brought healing in places where you wouldn't expect it. He says, behind the Iron Curtain, right? In heartbreak, in lost love, all these things that look like the opposite of being loved, are actually places where the I love you somehow got in. But he seems to only know it after the fact. As I listen to the song, it sounds like a retrospective. Looking back on life, that's where I saw it. You know, that was heartbreak. But oh my gosh, that was I love you. Right? And when he gets to the chorus, he sort of, his voice raises and he says, hey. And it's clear that every time he experienced love, he experienced it as a surprise. Right? And this is one of the things I want to say is that one, love can come in any form, the strangest forms. Sometimes something that feels like not love. Sometimes something that looks like what we would expect it to. But it always comes as a surprise. It always catches us off guard. It makes us say, hey, I thought those things were invisible, Burton Cummings says. But actually, I saw it. It got to me somehow, some way. And that's not a don't worry about it, you know. You know, don't worry when your house of cards falls down. But that is that we grieve, but not like those who don't have hope. Right? First Thessalonians. And the hope is not that the house of cards won't fall down. In that context, it's that Christians are dying. Right? The house of cards is really falling down. But when it falls down, we still grieve, but with hope. Because maybe at the end of the day, or maybe at the beginning of that new day, we'll be able to look back and say, hey, I saw it even there. I heard it even there. Right? And thank you for that. Yeah, Kurt. Um, maybe some of the disconnect also has to do with, I guess if it was at Luther's axiom, the most important organ for the Christians is the ears. Mm -hmm. um, and the places where we're supposed to hear of God's love was profoundly mainly um, when God's people gather together to worship them on Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. um, in our culture, we're not hearing the old, old story, <laughs> maybe very often. And then I, I think the other place where I hear 
of God's love most profoundly is in relationships with people that I love very much and when I receive love from them. Um, but maybe if I don't hear that love from them, <laughs> the disconnect becomes um, larger. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's... Yeah, I think there's a lot in what you said. You basically said everything. You you should come stand here immediately. No, but listen. I mean, there's a there's sort of a formal theological answer to this. If you were taking a theology test, you know, we could write the right answer down. Right? How does God's I love get you? Get to you? And there's a couple things you say. Well, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. It's the first thing you say. The fact that Jesus is alive is the bridge between then and there and here and now. How does Jesus make Himself present? Well, He does it through the Spirit. That's the Spirit's job, to mediate Christ, to witness to Christ. How does he do it? Well, it's through the Word. Sermon, Scripture, Sacrament, that sort of thing. And it's received by faith. Those are the formal theological answers to this question. But those things can feel just as disconnected as anything else. I mean, I don't know about you, but at least one time I've heard a sermon that didn't do it for me. Um, You know, at least one time that happened. Um, And the fact that you sort of ground it and bring it to relationships... I think is exactly where 1 John 4, what I've been talking about, winds up, which is interesting, right? The section right before God is love, the whole section says, beloved, we ought to love one another. Right? That's what it's all about. But what John decides to talk about to encourage us to love one another is not our love for one another, but God's love for us. Right? You should love one another. Now let me talk about how much God loves you, right? And then he says at the end, when you love one another, God is there, Right? That's actually where it is. So when I love you from a person, can very much become this I love you, both here and then here. Yeah. It just struck me once, one second ago when you said about that that one sermon you heard once that didn't work for you. Um, <laughs> you were preaching. <laughs> Fascinatingly, and I don't know of what value this is, but I find that Having heard and been impacted by the gospel that one life-altering time, now the Spirit even works through those sermons mm-hmm. under the opposite. Like I'm, like I'm processing the truth sort of in contrast to what I'm hearing. Even when I'm unloved, it's almost as though that's reminding me of what real love is like. It's like... It's not. I don't think it's as profound as when I am loved and when I'm actually um, hearing the sort of powerful proclamation of the gospel. But it's still there. It's it's reminding me almost by showing me the opposite. Yeah, I hear that. And one of the things I think, and I don't know how this works because there's no sort of you can't predict this, but I think it happens. Is that what we're talking about? This "I love you" is really one thing. It's what God has said in Jesus. It's not anything, it's one thing. It's this concrete, Jesus, crucifixion, I love you. But I think that that one thing gets said in anything. It comes in all sorts of ways. And what happens, I think, is that faith is kind of like a new perception. It's kind of like new ears. I don't mean faith is something that you sort of just get and have. Faith faith is just being loved. That's what it is. The word is I love you. Faith is being loved. That's what it is. And when you are loved, which obviously fluctuates, the world looks different, right? You open your eyes and you see I love you. And you open your ears 
and you hear I love you in the same places where before you didn't hear it. Because you're loved. I mean, if you've ever been in a relationship, you know this. If you have a child, right, and for these moments you get to see things through their eyes. Right? As a 21-year-old, I was totally over Disney World. Totally over it. As an 8-year-old, I loved it. 21-year-old, totally over it. I took my 5-year-old there for his birthday. Magic. Total magic. Right? Nothing had changed. But I was seeing and hearing differently. Right? Because of this thing. Yeah. I might uh, be going off in a different direction, but I think uh, the disconnect some oftentimes comes from where we get our definition of love. Mm. So many times I think of a psychology background going back to our parents. Mm. And I think so much of, you know, when we're children, we assume that all families run that way. And, you know, it's, we're disillusioned because we don't, when, you're, when we get older, we're like, oh, really? Your family is like that? Or that's how your parent is? <laughs> and when you think, you know, God is our father. So we were given these parents or were put in a situation where, you know, as we grow older, I think it's very difficult to pull apart what our parental love is like versus what God's love is really like. Because no matter what, we're in conditional relationships because yes. no one's capable of it. So I think trying to get past that illusion of like, oh, I thought I was being loved, but maybe I wasn't loved so much. Mm. And then so it becomes a disillusion, and so then you can't trust God either. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from that, at least yeah. from yeah. my journey. No, I think that's right. That's profound, too, because, I mean, what does the Spirit do, according to the New Testament, right? Mm. It testifies to our spirit and lets us cry, Abba, Father. Mm-hmm. But what if you say, Abba, Father, and you think, well, what if he's like, my father? Right. Yeah. <laughs> don't make me say that, Spirit. That could be a terrible thing. My dad left when I was one. I don't want that kind of father. And it's only, again, as Kurt was pointing out, it's the ears that are the essential organ. The way this sort of counterstatement, the real fatherhood, gets in is when you hear again a promise like the love of this father is the kind of love that nothing can separate you from. Neither height nor depth, right? Angels nor principalities, things presence or things to come can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's how this father loves you. And it's a contradiction to how I love my children. And it's stark. But it also means that only that kind of love will do. Way in the back. I'm not quite sure how to say this or ask this. I think it relates to what Nick was saying a moment ago. But um, I wonder if for certain believers, the past-present divide can actually be something that is helpful to us. Um, When we are in in a present moment where it's an extended moment of not feeling loved. I'm I'm thinking, for instance, of, um, you know, it emerged several years ago that Mother Teresa went most of her yeah, life without feeling and knowing that yeah. she was loved by God. And I wonder if part of part of what gets some people through those experiences is being able to look back to a past, you know, I was baptized, or I, I, I know that God claimed me at a certain point and I'm loved, even though in the present tense, I feel anything but. And, and so it, it's precisely that past-present distinction that, that saves you. I, I don't know. I'm yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I think that's absolutely right. What, what I want to press is sort of, like, what does it mean, well, how does it help you in that moment? And if it's helping you in that moment, then it's getting through again mm-hmm. in some way. So you're having this moment of not being loved, mm-hmm. and you're drawing on the words you heard, the promise made to you, which is the place to go, yeah. right? You go to Calvary, yeah. and you go to the baptismal font, and you go to the, your sins are forgiven. But... If that is helpful and a source of comfort then, then it's getting through. And I just find myself thinking about the sort of how does this happen and sometimes why does it not happen. Those are the sort of two questions I find myself living with. But absolutely, the past has got to ground this. But 
it being a source of comfort in the present is what didn't happen for Rutherford's character, right? And I want to say, how can it happen? Um, so we're very referential people, you know, um, visceral, and so every relationship we have, the best we're marred, the worst we're crushed by. Yeah. So um, how, you know, and being loved ultimately is being safe. So if we're not safe with anybody and we're not safe alone, mm. how can we trust anything that claims to be otherwise? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a powerful way of asking about this disconnection. The only sort of, you know, experience under the sun we have of this thing is something that's not going to anchor confidence. Mm -hmm. And yet it's also where we have to go, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's why the word, as I said, is always going to come. And these are just sort of sketches of things. I've basically been collecting stories you remember uh, the character of Vaughn in the Brothers Karamazov collected stories of childhood suffering? I've been trying to collect stories as I've been asking this question of people receiving love. And I've been trying to say, what are, what are some things that were in place? And the stories are so diverse, that's one of the remarkable things. But what you find is that it's always a surprise. Mm -hmm. It always contradicts what they perceived they should have been hearing or receiving. It always came as some kind of contradiction. It wasn't actually always, but it always felt like forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it wasn't forgiveness. Like, I thought when I met my wife that she would like me because I was a good lacrosse player. I didn't know that I was thinking that. Um, but I just, <laughs> I just assumed that. And I, you know, about three weeks into our relationship, I broke her the good news. Just to let you know, honey. Good lacrosse player. Things are going to be great. Um, jackpot for you. And in case you don't know, lacrosse is played exclusively by humans on a field. And... My wife looked at me and said, well, lacrosse, I think I've heard of that. That's the game they play on horses in the water. And, um, a sort of silly moment, but for me, the bottom fell out. I mean, it completely fell out, and I sat there and thought, oh, no, it's over. And but what happened was she just kept talking to me. You know, she moved on, and she wasn't forgiving me. She wasn't offended. She didn't care. But to me, it felt like forgiveness. She was forgiving me for not having, just for being me. Right? And when someone loves you, because you know, you know, it's always received as forgiveness. Um, and often it actually is forgiveness, too. I don't want to say that it's not forgiveness. When God says, I love you, he's saying, I forgive you. So there's those kinds of things. They're all things that are going to contradict our experience in that way. Right? So that's, yes? Isn't part of the disconnect, too, that we don't, want to hear it, because then what we're working towards, our expert lacrosse, doesn't mean anything, and, you know, I, I think sometimes it it's overwhelming, and yep. it is amazing, like, it, it's an, it is, but we, because of the things that we are, because we believe we don't deserve that, yep. we believe that so much, you know, that it, we don't want to hear. We like that disconnected safe as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a real bet, you know. I mean, we heard David say it, and we heard John say it in his own way about work being for one thing, for service. But that's not the reason we're stressed. Is not oh, I just really want to figure out how to serve people. I'm so stressed out right now. It's, <laughs> if I don't, if I don't do this, you know, I'm not worth anything. I'm not meaningful. I'm not significant. You know, and all of our work carries the burden of believing that whisper from Genesis 3. You will be like God. And when God shows up in the gospel and says, actually, I am, and I love you, it's a death to that self 
that wants to be like God. I think there's freedom, a true self that emerges from the ashes, as we heard, and that is actually now free to serve and to work and to play lacrosse as a form of worship and love for neighbor, which is a beautiful and freeing thing. But it's a real death to the part of us that is trying to be God. Right? And that part of us doesn't drown. What do the Lutherans love to say? It says, the old Adam is drowned in baptism, but that donkey is a good swimmer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's great. Um, that's great. You know, he's still around. And so that's part of the problem, too. You know, and I think, at the, at the deepest level, the reason that we experience this disconnect, what we're really talking about here, right, it's disbelief. It's a lack of faith. But that's not something we muster up, right? It's the I love you that creates the I am love. But when we experience this ditch, when we hear Lessing and say, ooh, that's my experience, it's actually not reality. It's what we're experiencing, this disconnect, this I am not love. But what reality is, is you are loved. And faith recognizes that there is no ditch. God actually does love me. He actually is saying it. Right? That's actually true. Right? The disconnect is not God's sort of wavering love for you. It's our own, the flux of our own experience of that love. Right? But it's not at all that the I love you is interrupted. Right? I think I struggle with, I compartmentalize God, and so if you can love this part of me, hmm. no way can you love this part of me. Um, and I think the, the ocean comes over me in love when two things happen. Either I'm shown love when I completely F it up. And it usually comes from my wife. Showing that me was love. E-F-F. Yeah, there's E-F. <laughs> right. Completely shows me love when I totally don't deserve it. Um, shows me mercy and grace. It's like an ocean coming over me, coming from someone else to me when I don't deserve it. And then of recent, I've seen it... Um, with a dear friend who has completely hit rock bottom and to be able to watch experientially God lift this person up from the dead and give him and bless him and call him beloved and give him new life and give him new ministry and give him new hope and say, if God can do that, wow, maybe he can love this part of me. Um, And it's always coming from somewhere outside myself, which is interesting to me. Absolutely right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just so easy to sort of believe in the abstract. Mm-hmm. God is love. Yeah. But, of course, that's about the person next to you. Yeah. Right? It's that you part of the I love you sentence that just, just can't be right. Mm-hmm. Um, he finds ways to say that it is. Yeah, I think we've got time for maybe two more, and then we'll... Well, I mean, as I'm sitting here, I'm just kind of shifting. I mean, could it be that just that kind of posture of it needing to be sort of a fresh leap of faith in the present tense, I mean, could that just be the posture of the Christian? You know, and, and the constant need to look to the past or hope to the future and just kind of be stuck in the present, I mean, is that just what the thing's about? Yeah, see, I think that's a really interesting question. What Christianity clearly offers, and I think offers profoundly, um, and this was actually communicated to me most clearly by a non-Christian philosopher, Hannah Arendt. She said, if there will be any hope for the past that we can't change and the future that we can't control, what it would have to be is a forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. And I thought, well, holy cow, you know, <laughs> sign me up. Um, but that's the past, right? That's sort of handling the archaeology. That's the future. And yet here we are, always poised at this place, living neither in the past or in the future, right? And it's this hope 
and this faith that sort of ground us here. And yet, because we sort of live not fully there, right? But we live in this time where Jesus has been raised, but we haven't. Where Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, but we still pray thy kingdom come. Right? Where we hear there is therefore no no condemnation, but life is a constant barrage of accusations from ourselves and others and the enemy. Right? And you're living there. You're not seeing the forgiveness and the future. You can only hear it. This is what Paul says. We walk by faith and not by sight. And I think that's the only appropriate posture in the present. Right? There's a time when we will see, when we will behold him face to face, and all things will be new. Right? But now we confess that. Right? But I think we confess it in these moments where it also sort of gets in, it pierces the present. Right? Somehow the past and the future break in. And um, how he does that, and when he does that, you know, spirit blows when and where he will. And when you don't know where he comes from or where he's going. But you kind of know when he's been there. At least retrospectively. But then it's in the past. Uh, and you wake up again. Uh, let me just bring our time to a close. I mean, I really don't even need a little reflection now. Because everything I hoped would say, you guys said. And so, thank you so much for being so responsive and sort of thinking with me. This was a real gift to me. Um, but let me just think with you for about five minutes, quickly, about Genesis 28. I was drawn to this passage for one specific reason. In Genesis 28, Jacob, who's had to flee, he's kind of abandoned, he's alone, he's not where he was told he would be, he's probably afraid, he's sleeping, he's got a rock for a pillow, I mean, things just aren't going very well. And he has a dream. And he has the dream, and there's a kind of ditch, there's a disconnect that's bridged. He sees a ladder set up on the earth, and it reaches to the heaven. And the angels are ascending and descending. So there's this kind of bridging of a ditch. So I thought, well, I should think about that passage a little bit as I'm asking about this disconnect or this ditch. And it's interesting that Jesus himself interprets this dream, and specifically the ladder, about him. In John chapter 1, he is calling Nathanael to be his disciple, and Nathaniel confesses him to be the Son of God, and he says, you will see the heavens open, and you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So in other words, as we've been saying, Jesus is the answer to this question. But he also raises the question. Right? He's the point at which the gap or the ditch between God and us is overcome by him becoming flesh. And he's the one who forgives the gap between God and our guilt by suffering death. So in a profound way, Jesus is the answer. But hopefully, as we've seen, he's also kind of the question here. But I don't want to stop saying that. Jesus is God's I love you. Yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That's the first thing that this lets us say. But what's remarkable about this passage is not just that it points to Jesus as the connection. It actually gets through to Jacob. He actually hears the I love you. So he wakes up, and he's in the same place he was, sleeping on this rock. But he wakes up, and something's different. He says, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Right? Something has changed, and I love that it changes when he was asleep. Right? We cannot credit Jacob with whatever changed. 
He was sleeping, and he had a dream, and that changed everything. And what's remarkable here, I think, is that it happens to Jacob while he's sleeping, while he's alone, while he's exposed. And it's in being known and being understood and seen and yet still being wanted. In the dream, the Lord is at the top of the ladder and he makes a promise. He reaffirms the promise to Abraham precisely when Jacob's not in the land. When the promise seems to be at a total dead end, God says, your children will be like the dust of the earth. And he's known and he's seen. Just like Nathaniel, who Jesus is talking to. I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel finds himself known. And he says, you are the son of God. And what you find here is that true self-knowledge is not actually something that the self does. Self-knowledge is about being known by another. Self-knowledge is about being known by the one who is the closing of this gap. One who forgives the gap between our guilt and God. And doesn't just know you, but loves you. And what Jacob hears in that dream is something that lets him wake up and see the presence of God in a place where he didn't see it before. And believe the promise that Jesus makes. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And faith, I think... Let's just clap extremely loudly right at the key moment. um, What I think faith in the promise does is it gives us a kind of new perception, right? A perception of ourself where we can be honest and take the mask off because in our being known, we have been loved. And therefore, a perception that frees us to say with Jacob, the Lord is in this place. In all those places where he might have felt like it and might not, the tears and the laughter and everything in between, we find that there is no ditch, but that he's here. He's in this place. And as Jacob confessed and as Jesus promised, right? God is here. That's what Emmanuel means. I am with you. And he loves you. That's what Jesus means. I will save you from your sin. So the one who is here is the one who lets us say God is love and the one who lets us say I am loved. And all I want to do as we close is pray a very short prayer for all of us. And so if you would pray with me. (coughs) Father, in our fear and lack of faith, in our loneliness and lovelessness, put us to sleep and let us dream of Jesus so that when we wake, we might have eyes to see that you are here and ears to hear the one I love you, that you speak in endless ways. The question is new every morning, but so are your mercies. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much.